The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run G.S. Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in, in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. This is the first episode of Food Court. Today, we've got Carly Dunster on the podcast, who has a great personal and professional interest in the world of food law and policy. She's a member of the Toronto Food Policy Council. She has recently written a chapter on food law and policy in Canada and the U.S. in International Food Law and Policy, a text published by Springer and to be released in 2016. Now, at work, she's a lawyer at Turnpenny Milne, a workplace and employment law firm where Carly performs workplace investigations and has been developing workplace policy tools specifically for the hospitality sector. Her work is a response to the human rights claims and employment disputes that have been placing pressure on kitchens and hospitality businesses to create positive workspaces as a way to prevent burnout, to prevent the bleeding of talent and other bottom line business problems. And these problems have been pervasive. Two years ago, there was a case of discrimination found by the Human Rights Commission against Le Papillon on the Park restaurant, where three Muslim restaurant workers were awarded $100,000 after being forced to eat pork. This June, Kate Burnham filed a complaint with the Ontario Human Rights Commission that alleged an insidious and pervasive discriminatory environment at West Lodge, a high-end restaurant in Toronto, coupled with a media spotlight that is being thrust on chefs like never before, and a sudden public interest surrounding the hospitality workplace as one that encounters high levels of violence, addiction, burnout, mental health issues, and general instability, it seems like time to have a good look at how to design a better restaurant. We started with the Kate Burnham example. But Carly, what's your take on this? Is this unprecedented? Certainly in my job, I've represented service industry employees who have had their share of maybe not sort of crossing the threshold of harassment, but issues in the workplace that were problematic, some of them based on their gender, some of them not. Um, but to me, it was pretty groundbreaking because here was a young, successful pastry chef uh, working for a very high-profile, cool, hip, <laughs> making a lot of money kind of restaurant who was owned by people who are established in the business. You know, these guys own a lot of restaurants. So for her to so publicly call out um, them and, and, you know, I don't know if you've read the application, but there are 
so many examples that she provides. I mean, listen, this is all before the tribunal. So, you know, <laughs> That's right. who knows what will come out, you know, once things actually proceed to a hearing or if they do proceed to a hearing. But there she she brought forward multiple problematic examples of conduct, some of it based on gender, also some of it not some of it bullying, some of it sort of more like what I would um, identify as psychological harassment or personal harassment. So that's any kind of harassment that's not actually based on a prohibited ground. So it's not you're not being harassed because you're a woman or because of your age. You're being bullied um, simply because your superior thinks that's okay or your colleague thinks that's okay. So I did think it was pretty pretty shocking. Shocking that it was so public. Not shocking that it was happening. That seems to be the take from many players in the industry. I mean, it was something that was shocking to me. Sadly, it was not necessarily the pleadings, not that I read them, just the the news articles. Something that was shocking to me was the way the profession responded Mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, And maybe it's a product of in 2015, we're in the age of the celebrity chef and the chef that's very public and the kitchen that's more of an open space than ever before. But uh, chefs were really saying, uh, are you with us in changing this or are you going to remain silent? In which case you're against us. And that's unprecedented in the in the profession it was really impressive that uh that this woman's horrific experience uh led to to such an outcry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now now out of it came have come well a variety of things uh, but one of them is a conference that's coming up uh later this week probably after any of our listeners will hear this broadcast mm-hmm. but uh put on by the black hoofs co-founder and the owner of uh rum corner uh, Jen Ag, and so you're attending this conference. Yeah, I'm attending it just as a as an attendee, um, and I'm really interested to see uh, how she how she sets this up. I know there's a lot of really high profile people, men and women, um, not just chefs, but food writers and people sort of in the food industry that are speaking at it. Um, and I know that right after the Burnham application was filed and it all kind of became public. You know, I heard Jen Ag on The Current talking about gender discrimination in the workplace and talking about how rampant it was and, and talking about how basically she wasn't going to sit by while, you know, the patriarchy continued to dominate the kitchen world. And so this is her, I mean, I don't know Jen personally, but this is, uh, to me, this looks like her way of trying to keep the conversation going so that it's not just this one woman's application, so that there's actually an op- there's an opportunity here to do some navel gazing, (laughs) Uh, you know, and look at, you know, there's a lot of really uh, popular restaurants in the city. There's a lot of really high profile chefs. Like you say, there's people that have influence. Um, So, so now's the time to look at your workplace and figure out, do I have the, this, the elements in place to make this workplace a healthy one? Like could Kate Burnham be working at my restaurant and I just don't know it? You know, could people be experiencing things like Kate Burnham experienced? And I, you know, and I'm just not on top of it, you know, so I'm, I'm, it's, I'm excited. I'm excited to go. I think it's really cool that she's doing it. It needs to be really interesting. The, the thing that I find fascinating about it is the singularity of focusing on gender because it's, it's a huge issue and it's an historic issue. I mean, I think every student that goes through law school and, and most uh, applications that are filed in uh, discrimination law cite this case from the the late 80s called Jans and V. Platy Enterprises. Two women are harassed to a horrific degree, and their complaint is contained in in the Supreme Court judgment that was ruled on, and it spoke to 
to how horrific it was to work in the industry as a woman mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s. Uh, we're questioning how much has changed uh, and how indolent most business owners were, mm -hmm. right? This was just mm -hmm. the way things were. Mm -hmm. It's 1985, it's 1982. Of course, you're going to get harassed. Uh, right. You're a woman and you're a waitress and we've got you wearing a skirt and you're being chased around here and that's that's what life looks like for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually think that it's not that different in a lot of places. I mean, I think that we've cut, we've made great strides in, in providing sort of um, employment equity legislation and uh, human rights legislation to really um, try and provide some sort of legal framework for people to be protected. But I actually think that um, there are still a lot of restaurants where, uh, from a gender perspective specifically, there is a lot of harassment, there's a lot of sexual harassment, there's a lot of gender discrimination. And when you think about it, this industry sort of houses a lot of young, inexperienced people that don't make very much money, um, that don't necessarily have a ton of job opportunities. And for a, a lot of people, this the service industry is their first work experience. So as a restaurant owner, that's a lot, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. Like you are the first exposure that this individual has to the workplace. If it's an anything goes kind of workplace, then that person builds career experience thinking, well, I had to suck it up at the last place, so I probably have to suck it up here, you know? So it's like you're dealing with young people. Um, there's a lot of turnover. Uh, there's a lot of stress inherent in restaurant jobs in any role, from the front of house to the back of house. Um, you're dealing not just with stressed out colleagues and, you know, crazy workload, um, but you're also dealing with uh, angry customers and unsatisfied customers. So you're kind of getting it from all angles. So it's a very vulnerable job in a lot of ways. Totally agree. I worked in hospitality for the better part of 10 years mm -hmm. from like 14 before I had an SIN to, uh, to after undergrad. And uh, it's long hours. It's on your feet. It's always keeping a smile on no matter how you're feeling. It's sucking it up mm -hmm. and it's hot and it's sweaty and... Mm -hmm. Uh, place the the only place that you're given where you can really vent, or for me, the only place that you were given where you could really vent was either in the walk-in cooler or uh, or deep in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. What was particularly shocking for me about this Burnham example is that it happened uh, at this restaurant, and uh, and the ownership group that owns this restaurant owns several, and so for me, just from an organizational understanding, I always thought that the larger a group got, the more professional it would become. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we see in this city, we've got some tremendous examples uh, of, uh, of sort of corporate organized kitchens. And so we've got Sir Corp and we've got Oliver and Bonaccini. Mm -hmm. uh, and typically sort of the feel that you get when you work with these groups uh, is that there's a sense of, uh, of helping people in their first job, helping guide their career path or helping to uh, create a team environment or to support people or to educate or to give back. Like there's this sort of long view that while one restaurant may come or go, uh, we've got enough to replace it with something else. And we want to ensure that we retain talent in our organization to make sure that we'll have a great kitchen from the get-go there who know our policies and know how we work and what we do. With this Kabooth restaurant, it was really difficult to wrap my head around this Burnham piece because this is a really experienced uh, group of restaurateurs and they know how to make great kitchens and make really solid food and create a neat environment for the diner to be in. 
and the way that they approach it is typically a money is no object uh, approach. As a diner, that's how I feel. I've not worked with, with any of these groups. I'm just, mm-hmm. that's my, how I perceive them. Uh, but then to, to turn a blind eye to a toxic kitchen environment like this seems so short-sighted. Uh, from uh, an HR point of view, it was it was really shocking that it came out in this way. Well, and I think a lot of it probably uh, went unnoticed by anybody in in the um, like in real positions of leadership there. I mean, I think one thing that's important to note to note about the Burnham thing is is what she's alleging. She's alleging complaints against. There's actually three individuals, three guys, in the, in the kitchen, other kitchen staff that she's saying conducted, you know, or or. or um, engaged in a course of conduct that was harassing towards her. I mean, Charles Caboose, like, I'm sure he has people in high <laughs> HR positions, but but my question is, and what I'll be interested to see, and hopefully we'll get more insight into it as the case moves forward, if it does move forward, is, you know, what, what kind of policies do they have in place? What kind of training had they ever done with their staff? Was there any back and forth with their staff on, on, you know, what a healthy work environment is and what that looked like? And here's who you talk to if you're, if you, if you experience something at the workplace that you're concerned about, you know, you know, call Joe, (laughs) he's your guy to talk to. Like one of the things that these workplaces need to do, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more in shortly is make it really easy for people to complain. (laughs) You know, it has to be easy. People have to be able to turn and find somebody that they can speak to about these things. Because like in this complaint, there are so many examples. This went on for a fairly significant period of time. I can't remember exactly how long it did, but you know, uh, it wasn't just one thing. Um, It was a number of things. And likely, you know, I'm speculating here, but I bet Kate Burnham didn't really know who to talk to about it. Because the thing is, like, the restaurant environment is so all about all hands on deck, getting the food on the table. Um, and it's it's kind of a grimy, dirty, like, get the job done kind of gig. It's not as if you're sort of checking in with HR in the morning or, you know, like, you don't right. It's not like a regular office where you come right. in and, like, you know who does this and you know who does this. Like, sometimes the, the entire back office, often, especially with the bigger kitchens, the entire back office is, has no role in the on the ground work. So if you're somebody, a pastry chef, experiencing some issues in the kitchen, you probably have no clue who to raise those issues with. You know what I mean? And that's a communication issue that that I totally put on the leadership, you know? Oh, I'd agree. I'd agree. But it's for me, it was, it was interesting because I contrasted uh, from my experience. I worked at, at large hotels uh, and then I worked at very small restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so at large hotels, I always, I felt... And like the hotel jobs were summertime jobs. So I wasn't worried about uh, what was going to happen to me if I were there two years down the road and someone got promoted to whatever. Mm-hmm. But I always knew that like if anything really weird happened, like there was a, a skip over my manager, their general manager of the restaurant to a higher food and beverage manager or mm-hmm. someone else. And there was some comfort in in that vertical management structure that I could sort of hop out uh, hop out of line if there weren't so, if there wasn't someone I could talk to at the restaurant level. Right. Uh, whereas uh, at a smaller restaurant, uh, and this is all hypothetical, and I'm very lucky that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could talk to the person whose name is on the lease and who paid for the ovens, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Uh, or I could try and hash it out in the workplace, or I could right. quit. And really, that's that's right. all that was available to me. So with with the Kabooth example, I always thought that. 
these complaints would more likely come up in a in a one-off sort of restaurant or or that sort of thing right now yeah me. yeah sorry i see i see what you're saying because you think that there's sort of the infrastructure there um but maybe even that's more telling right it's like it wasn't even comfortable raising it with someone outside of that paradigm. Yeah, and I can tell you in my experience, um, I, I work with people that have um, been members of staff of small restaurants and big restaurants, and there doesn't seem to be really any difference in terms of the experience, you right. know? Um, yeah, so I mean, I understand that the bigger, the bigger shops have more resources, um, but I don't know if they're applying them correctly. It's uh, it may well change. So yeah. so we had this this human rights case, and we're having a conference that's going to be in a couple of days that you're attending. Yeah. And a few weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, uh, Ivy Knight, who was a well known sort of food or food media person in the city, printed us an article in the Star, the mm-hmm. Toronto Star, alleging that she had been essentially attacked mm-hmm. uh, in her workplace yeah. uh, ten years ago. Uh, and complained to the owner of the restaurant she was working at, Mildred's Temple. Uh, and the owner at the time is now the CEO of Restaurants Canada. Yeah. Uh, and Ivy Knight's point, uh, which I think is, for me, I identify with because I see sort of unhealthy workplaces in a variety of different ways, not just gender, although gender is definitely a primary one and a historical one. Uh, but... Uh, basically identified that this is a this is a cultural thing like in hospitality we've sort of accepted that we're going to have uh non-rights-based sort of approaches to getting our job done and that involves abuse and that involves uh discrimination and and inherent instability mm-hmm. uh, and then it's not necessarily a gender problem although that's a huge part of it it's actually like just inherent and there needs to be some change mm-hmm. and what was your take on that well, I mean, first of all, I thought that was a, a pretty, yeah, that was a pretty intense article and obviously something that um, that's the kind of experience that stays with you. It doesn't matter if it was a decade ago, that really colors your whole experience in your work, right? The response on the part of the owner was uh, unsurprising, unfortunately. Um, again, sort of a suck it up. This is a kitchen, you know? And yeah, it's sort of irrelevant whether or not a woman did that or a, or a man did that. It's it's it doesn't matter. It's a macho response. It's a macho response. It's a macho environment, you know. I guess it must be five or six years ago now. Don't quote me on that, but you know, our government actually amended the Occupational Health and Safety Act to to account for the concepts of workplace violence and workplace harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, so to sort of broaden the kinds of things that, um, the kinds of rights that you are entitled to and the protections that you're entitled to as an employee of a workplace, um, so that it's not just, the, the only thing you have to rely on isn't the human rights code, because that may not apply, you know? And in kitchens, I think this is, ex- this is very, very pertinent because there's a, there's a real bullying culture. There's a real psychological harassment, like the kind of nitpicking, demeaning, derogatory, yeah. you know, on you, like constant criticism, you know, just that, that real, um, <clears throat> that real uh, aggressive, aggressiveness um, that isn't because you're a woman or you're short or, you know, you have a disability or whatever. It's because you work in a kitchen <laughs> and that's, that's, you signed up for this and therefore like, you know, this is part of the culture here. Um, so in this province, um, now things are a bit different. The framework is a little bit different. It doesn't mean that it's all being applied correctly, 
But we do have a legislative backing to say, you know, you can't be that bully that makes me that that pushes me up against the show the stove and says, you're going to clean this effing stove <laughs> before you go. You know, like that isn't okay anymore. It was out of full metal jacket. It was insane. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I mean, not that it was okay before or 10 years ago or 50 years ago. Sure. But but now, you know, if somebody was to come into my shop and say, you know, here's what happened to me, I would be like, well, I know, you know, exactly the legal grounding that I would base this in, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a cultural issue in our kitchens. And it goes beyond the traditional gender piece. It is it is something that transcends that. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's disappointing to hear that anybody is letting that kind of behavior slide in the workplace. Um, but it happens all the time. Right. <laughs> and people think that they just need to persevere because that's what it, it's like to work in a kitchen. You know, and, and you, you mentioned recently to me this uh, Renee Redzepi article in the latest issue of Lucky Peach. And, you know, he talks about that culture of kitchens and sort of that ego-driven aggression. Um, it's okay to flip out if you're the boss and throw somebody under the bus or embarrass somebody, you know. Um, if, it's in the, if, it's, if it's in the pursuit of the perfect plate of food, then it's okay, you know. And he's kind of come to this, to this you know, coming to Jesus moment where he's like, that's not the kind of workplace I want to run. You know, maybe that's how I was 10 years ago or five years ago, but I want people to feel like they can come to my restaurant and feel safe and protected and make awesome food and please the customer, you know, and be really hard workers. So I think there is a real, I think there is a greater understanding um, amongst restaurateurs now that, that it matters and that, you know, we're dealing with all of these, you know, at least in Toronto, there's this massive cook shortage. There's like a shortage of talented people totally. um, that are signing up to work in kitchens. And I, I mean, I don't think the two are, I don't think the two, like, I think the two are related. I think those two issues are related because if you, who wants to go to work at a place where you're constantly exposed to, to harassing behavior? I mean, that's not what I would want to sign up for. Uh, that's not where I want to waste my talent if I'm a really awesome chef. <laughs> I'm going to try and start my own restaurant instead, you know. Yeah. I'm not going to work for you for five years. I'm going to do my own thing. So I do think that there's a there's a, uh, a recognition on the part of the people that are in leadership and ownership positions in the industry that something is amiss. They need to kind of figure that out and, and work towards making these environments more healthy. We spend so much time in the food sector talking about ethical food and fair trade and and procurement and and eating sustainably and locally and being fair to the environment and being great stewards uh, in the sector. And then from a workplace standpoint, we've spent a lot of time talking about how horrible discrimination has been in a variety of fields. Mm-hmm. But a lot of kitchens remain the wild west of, of human rights policy. Mm-hmm. So and I think what you're what you're enunciating here is it's like so the problem is or the question is like are 21st century chefs still running 20th century kitchens like mm-hmm. has the food changed well the food has changed and the culture has not mm-hmm. the labor shortage is a fascinating wrinkle to this I'm lucky in that I work with uh, a few clients that are in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. uh, but they have been remarkable in creating what I perceive to be very warm uh, communities of people who love food and are engaged in what they do. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and they are they are lighthouses or beacons to to anyone who wants to to create a positive work environment. Uh, but for the average chef, I think that they they sort of take take what we've just said this idea of uh, like toxic work environments and all of this, uh, and they say, look, there's a labor shortage. Uh, we got these young guns that come out of culinary school. They want to open their own restaurant immediately. They're not interested in paying their dues. They've all got ADD. They've got no work ethic. They're transient, so they're willing to bump from restaurant to restaurant uh, every like six weeks until they either find a new job or they try and start their own. Uh, and so we're stuck taking whatever we can get. Like, what are we supposed to do? And so what do you say to those people? Well, I mean, I still think the the onus is on the employer to create an environment where people would actually like to stay a little longer. And you get more out of people when you create an environment that fosters that, you know? I mean, those restaurants that, you know, that you've talked about where they've created this real community sense and there's real buy-in on the part of the front of house and the back of house and, you know, everybody uh, everybody feels quite sort of sustained in their employment. Those are the places that people stay. That kind of that kind of employer breeds loyalty, and doesn't have to deal with as much as the tur- of the turnover and of the of the short staffing as others do. I mean, listen, it's a it's a fact of of restaurant life that those jobs tend to have higher turnover, just because they're hard jobs and you know people get bored and there's a real creative creative streak and a lot of the people that are working for you at least in the back of house and you know I mean people do get a little distracted but but I know those places that have that kind of healthy environment and the people that work there stay there they dig in um, they lend their creative weight to the success of the restaurant you know and they and they really um, they stay so I mean, from an employer's perspective, sure. I mean, I don't care if you're dealing with the most transient kid with ADD who smokes a, a shit ton of weed every day, or you're dealing with, you know, the nerdy culinary school grad who's staged at like you know every <laughs> every Heston Blumenthal restaurant there ever was. Like it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter who you're dealing with. Every employee deserves to be treated with respect, and every employee deserves to have the same amount of um opportunity for success in a workplace so it behooves the restaurant owners to invest even when even when it seems like you know the short game is <laughs> they're all heading out the door anyway well like Renee Redzepi's article I thought was really neat because he he ended up focusing on this idea of the the family meal before service and actually pushing back the hours of his restaurant to accommodate for eating dinner together uh, as a group, as a team or as a group of people with a common goal in mind to build that sense of community and to move away from this, this ego, this idea of it's about me uh, to help, to help foster team goals. Uh, and David Chang wrote up a follow-up article to Redzepi's article that basically said, it's easy to yell and scream and be a dick in the kitchen, but it's not effective over the long term. He uses a uh, cheesy Star Wars example, but says the dark side's so easy to do, and I've done it, and we've all done it, but it's horrific and it's damaging, and really the the light side is the trick. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's it's only part of the answer. I mean, the other question is like, so what other tools do do kitchens have available to them to make a better workplace? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as as uh employers now in ontario we're actually mandated to have certain policies in place including a workplace violence and a workplace harassment policy 
Um, so there's no skirting around that issue. You need to have it. It needs to be posted somewhere where people can see it. Um, but it's not, I mean, I never advise clients to drop a policy and put it up in the lunchroom. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And you're done. <laughs> you know? Ta-da. In fact, that's probably the worst idea possible. I think it's really important for employers to tailor their policies to their specific work environment. So your policy should be different than the kind of policy that's present in an office. It's got to take into account the high stress situation that you're in. Um, it's got to take into account the sort of the customer influence, like the the customer presence. Like there's you're so the customers are so in your face in restaurants, and and they're part of your work environment. So there's got to be attention paid to that. Um, all this to say, your policy has to be specifically suited to your unique work environment. And, you know, um, I know some people that can help you draw up one of those. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think I actually think one of the one, a smart thing to do, particularly for restaurants, and I think it kind of taps into this issue that we talked about before, which is, you know, maybe at some of these places, uh, the people in charge have no idea what's going on in the ground. Like do an anonymous survey of your staff. Give them an opportunity to speak freely about the kinds of things that they're experiencing in the workplace. And that's your like that's your um, that's your touch point. Then you've got all of this kind of raw information about um, what your employees are doing. They have no hesitation bringing it forward because uh, they're it's anonymous and it's ostensibly safe for them to speak freely about it. And then you take that and then you say, okay, so here are the issues that we're facing. We know what our obligations are in terms of creating an environment that's free of workplace violence and free of workplace harassment. And we know that this is the kind of thing that people are experiencing. So like, let's tackle this in a, in a specific way. And once you develop the policy, that's not the end of the game. Like you then have to train people on it. People have to understand what their obligations are. Um, not just your managers and your supervisors, but your, your everybody. <laughs> everybody has to understand how they have to treat people, the standards that you're going to set for them, um, the standards that you're going to hold them to. And then you do that, you do that a couple times a year even. You know, you just check in. You've got to train people on your policies. You've got to make sure that it's not a, a, a toothless document that just sits on a shelf somewhere. It's got to have teeth <laughs> I used yeah it's gotta have teeth no, it's gotta sure. have teeth it's gotta be it, people have to know about it um and I said this before but it has to be really easy for people to complain part of a policy is hopefully setting up some kind of process for if an issue does arise here's the steps that you can take here are the steps that you can take and so it, it makes it kind of like this living document that people can actually access and that actually feels uh, helpful for you as an employer and for the employee because from the employer's perspective, like I bet you those guys that run West Lodge and, and women are like, this is a huge pain in the ass. Like, How could we have prevented this from happening? <laughs> you know, and what else are we exposed to now that sort of this little this little window has been opened into into some of the issues that are happening in our workplace? If those three guys are doing it to this woman, like who have they done it to in the past? Who are they still doing it to? Like, I mean, I think that those people have all moved on from West Lodge, but, you know, there's a. It, it makes sense from the employer's perspective uh, from, for a number of reasons, for ethical, moral reasons, but also for financial reasons. Like you don't want to expose yourself to this kind of liability um, that, can, that can arise from these kinds of issues going unnoticed in your workplace. If you have a place where people say, where Kate Burnham could have said, okay, so I know what to do. I just had this, we just had a training session like eight months ago. I remember, you know, it being hammered into me that that was not okay. 
And that if that happened, I went and spoke to X, Y, or Z. And then, you know, and then we go from there. It doesn't mean you don't still have to be super brave (laughs) to raise those kinds of issues in the workplace. That is always going to be the case, be you uh, any gender, be you any level of (laughs) employee. But at least somebody has told you that kind of conduct isn't going to be okay here. So if you see that, here's what you do. You know, I think that that kind of thing goes a really long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like this. I think the best way to frame these issues, uh, you mentioned this, is from a bottom line issue. Like really, like unless you're talking uh, about the argument to unionize from a worker's perspective, you're really talking to employers here. Mm -hmm. Employers have control. They create the workplace. They create the rules and they try and create the environment that they think uh, does best for their business. Mm -hmm. What's really neat in my line of work uh, and I work for four companies. I try and help them deal with uh, governance issues and deal with organizational issues uh, and that sort of thing. Is that a lot of uh, smaller businesses are taking more and more aggressive approaches to accounting mm. to the point where if you're really on your game, you can tell me how much it costs to lose a dishwasher yeah. and then have to find one and then train them and then get them moving. And there's a cost associated with that. So all of a sudden, when you start to quantify these these parts, uh, it makes a lot more sense to to spend more resources on on retaining staff or creating a healthy workplace environment. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating about you is like here are the ways that, and I've been reading about this a lot because I find it really interesting. It's sort of a, it's an issue that's that's of the moment right now. Sadly, it's not. It's of the last hundred years, but really. <laughs> In this city, anyway, it feels as though it's of the moment, and and the the principles that are being uh, sort of put out there by by industry magazines are creating a team environment, very much what Rene Redzepi put out there. Uh, it's to develop from within. So look at your roster of talent and try and figure out how uh, how you can do best with what you got, and secondly, guide people to provide a a clear path to advancement for those who work there. Uh, it's about getting involved with culinary schools and trying to find top talent and to incentivize people to work well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sending people on dinners together or to do staff meals uh, or send them to trade shows, whatever. Mm-hmm. The one thing that no one is talking about, nobody is talking about, is is the workplace policy piece. And so what I find so fascinating about your perspective on this is here you are, someone who does workplace investigations for a living. And you see this problem, and it seems like you have the the missing piece that no one is talking about, and that's that's creating uh, like a, a policy framework that's specific to to hospitality, mm-hmm. to creating a better culture in the kitchen, uh, that's that's rights based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I and I think it has a lot to do with my background in food and in food law and. You know, I used to run a practice that was not employment-based, but but worked with people that were starting up food, food-based food businesses and um, with some restaurants as well. And yeah, this is kind of a natural evolution of, so I did that for a while and now I'm doing employment law. And, you know, I'm always kind of hearkening back to, to the food world. You know, there's always a pull there. And yeah, it feels like this is something that I can offer that I think isn't, isn't being done yet. <laughs> You know, or it isn't being done in an effective enough way. You know, uh, I think that I think that there's a real opportunity there for employers. There's so many cool progressive places and progressive people in the city 
restaurants, namely that 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 maybe are overlooking this aspect um, and and could really just do a little bit of legwork at the front end uh, to save yourself a lot of hassles and you know from an economic perspective to save yourself a lot of liability and a lot of time later in in the event that an event happens uh, or that an issue is raised. But but even more importantly. To create an environment where people want to work and people want to stay, you know, and and that kind of environment, um, you know, translates to I think greater success. So it's 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 in the best interest of the restaurant owners to to turn their mind to that and and make sure they've got all that shit sorted. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll end Absolutely. with an expletive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gonna have to call up Apple now and tell them that I have some explicit language on my. You can say that on cable, right? And it's fine, whatever. Uh, so, so I guess like my question to you, my last question to you, is: so let's say I'm a restaurant owner, and and I'm buying into what you're telling me here, which is that, that there are probably five or six tools I have at my disposal, and one of them is a legal one. I've never considered this before. What do I do, and what does it look like? My advice would be to get in touch with somebody that does this kind of work and does this kind of policy development piece. Um, and and then you have a conversation with them about what's happening in your workplace and, and try and figure out if there's a policy tool that can that can help you with that. I mean, I think this idea of a survey, survey I'm really cottoning on to because I do think that part of the issue in restaurants is a lot of stuff happens um, really fast, kind of behind closed doors. There's not a lot of people necessarily witnessing it. So I do think that uh, one way to really tailor a policy to your specific workplace is to get that raw material from your staff, um, have them invest, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes and fill out a survey for you that just says, how are things going? Have you experienced anything lately that looked or felt like harassment? Do you even know what harassment is? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like really just get at the very basic questions. It's not complicated. You don't need a lawyer to tell you what kind of questions you should be asking. Just it's a touching base with your staff. And then once you get that information, you can kind of work to craft a policy. Um, like, listen, there's templates online for this stuff. The Ontario government puts out template workplace violence and workplace harassment policies. You can absolutely do this yourself. Um, or you can consult somebody that does this for a living, you know? I mean, it's it's up to you. And then once you've got a kind of a policy in place, um, then you need to talk about training, you know, and training your staff. And uh, it's going to be an investment. Because you're going to have to pay people to show up to train <laughs> and figure out what harassment is. <laughs> and that doesn't take, uh, you know, an hour. It takes a few, um, depending on the size of your workplace, obviously. Um, so then you train your staff and you hold people accountable. Uh, you empower people to actually implement the policy and give it, give it some real heft in the workplace. Um, and then you make sure that people know who to talk to if things go wrong. Like it's a, it's a pretty, you know, this, this is, these are things that, that you do for workplaces all the time. It's not rocket science, but you need to invest the time and the effort at the outset and uh, and get that done. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's again, like I said before, it's in the employer's best interest to do so. And it'll certainly make your employees happier. <laughs> happy employees, happy business. Absolutely. Especially in hospitality. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. Well, Carly, thank you so much for joining us. This is fantastic. Many thanks to Carly Dunster for joining us today. Again, Carly is an employment lawyer at Turnpenny Milne LLP in Toronto, Ontario. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, so to continue this discussion, please feel free to reach out to Carly on Twitter, 
where she can be found as at Carly A. Dunster, or by commenting where we post these episodes at food.gsjameson.com. The next episode of Food Court will feature British Columbia lawyer Daniel Coles, where we talk about liquor reform on the West Coast and the impacts of changes to liquor policy on stakeholders from distillers to licensees to farmers markets, consumers, all the way to insurers. Thanks to Shane McPherson for graciously and thoughtfully providing the intro music to Food Court. See you all next time.